You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. Well, we're here in part to resolve the question, do we look like them because we choose them? Or do we look like them because after spending so much time with them, we just start uh, to look differently? Right? I'm talking about our companions, our very best friends. And uh, you be the judges. We've got a little image here to uh, try to rule on the decision. What do you think? There's no doubt about it. We do start to look like our pets, our dogs, our cats, man's best friend, so to speak. I was interested this week to stumble across a study to know the kind of fine research they're doing down at University of California, uh, San Diego. They're actually studying this in 2004. Um, they con- made a conclusion, and I want to read to you the complete extract, because I know we have some scientists in our midst. Uh, this is what they came up with. We examined whether the frequent causal reports of people resembling their pets are accurate by having observers attempt to match dogs with their owners. We further explored whether any ability of observers to make such matches is due to people selecting dogs who resemble themselves, in which case the resemblance should be greater for predictable purebreds than for non-purebreds, or is it due to convergence, in which case the resemblance should grow with the duration of ownership. Okay? Forty-five dogs and their owners were photographed separately, and judges were shown one owner, that owner's dog, and one other dog with the task of picking out the true match. The results were consistent with a selection account. Observers were able to match only purebred dogs with their owners, and there was no relation between the ability to pair a person with his or her pet and the time that they had cohabited. The ability to match people and pets did not seem to rely on any simple trait matching, like the size or hairiness. Uh, The results suggest that when people pick a pet, they seek one that at some level resembles themselves. And when they get a purebred, they get what they want. I don't know if that's good news or bad news to you folks. As you go home, you can be your own judge of that. But it says, yeah, we actually do look like our dogs. And it's not because we, uh, because we, over time, begin to take on their qualities or they ours. It's not a matter of convergence, the study says. It's a matter of selection. We tend to choose companions uh, that are like ourselves. Isn't that interesting? And yet the writer in our text today, which is a proverb, will tell us that in the same way, humans become like their human companions. And it's not a matter of selection. It's a matter of convergence. It's not a matter of picking friends who are like you. It's a matter of walking with friends who are not like you and who make you like themselves over the course of time. That's what the writer of Proverbs would have you believe uh, this morning. Let's open up uh, our Bibles to Proverbs 13, verse 20. In fact, if you're able, I invite you to stand and let's together read this text, Proverbs 13, verse 20. You'll find on page uh, 519 of the Pew Bible. Proverbs 13. We're just reading one verse, verse 20. If you're visiting with us, I'll say... When we're done reading, this is the word of the Lord, and if you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully. You're reading God's word. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, 
But the companion of fools suffers harm. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but what you just read lasts forever. Please be seated. When your companion, your friend, takes you out for a walk, you will come back differently. You don't notice this necessarily when you take your dog out for a walk. Although you may sometimes meet somebody uh, along the way, and that might make a change in your life. But that 20-minute or 30-minute circuit doesn't necessarily seem to change you. But the contention of the proverb is that when you go out with a companion, when you walk with a friend, you're going to come back a different person. And, And here's the invitation of the morning. If that companion is a wise person, you come back wiser. Wow. A lot of means of grace in our lives, as the reformers would have called them, means by which God pours his grace into our lives to make a difference, to make a change, to make the promises of God more real in our experience. But who'd have thought our companions, just the people that we take walks to, the ordinary folks, that's what the book of Proverbs tells us. We come back changed. Why is this? I want to advance three reasons this morning to you, and then I want to take some time to apply that to your life, to invite you into the reality of this proverb personally. First, the three reasons why I think it is that companionship is transformational in our lives. That as the proverb says, whoever walks with the wise becomes wise. But the companion of fools suffers harm. First reason is this, and that is that life is a walk. It's a walk. This is no big secret. I mean, the literature of the ages has oftentimes portrayed life as kind of a journey, a kind of a sequence, a progression from one event to the next. And it's a a progression that shapes our destiny. The existentialists taught us that every choice is determinative. With each little choice or each great choice, whichever magnitude, we're making a different destiny for ourselves. And that's what the existentialists would have us believe. This is kind of automatic. The Bible talks a lot about walking. It's a principal metaphor for the experience of life and for the experience of change. Because when the Bible talks about walking, it's always talking about that reality in the backdrop of God's invitation to come and walk uh, with God. The word derek in Hebrew, which means road or way or path, is repeated 710 times in the Old Testament Hebrew Bible. Seven, it's just all over the place. The people are walking. They're on a path. They've got a journey. God has an intention for them that they get somewhere in life and that each step in the process is important. So the foot becomes the uh, decisive instrument. There's a lot of talk about the foot. Where will it go? It's that, um, it's that instrument by which we determine, will we go forward? Will we take the next step? Will we go to the right or to the left, as the uh, writer of Proverbs says in 4.26? Keep straight the path of your feet, and all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. See, it's how you... How you manage your foot that makes a difference in the wisdom tradition. What do you do with your foot? Right? You want to move it forward. 
You want to move it in sync with God's instructions. You want to move it up the path towards the invitation that God has extended to you and to me in, in, in grace. What is wisdom? It's not the same thing as intelligence. That's a kind of a native gift. Right? We've all got an intelligence. It's not the same thing as education. Uh, many of us have been blessed with the opportunity to cultivate our intelligence with information and education. Wisdom is something different. It's a, it's a faculty of the spirit. It's something very deep inside of us that comes out in action. It's a skill. It's, it's a life skill. Wisdom is the truth about God embodied in life. Wisdom is the truth about God embodied in life. Sometimes the smartest of people, sometimes the most educated of people, cannot seem to apply the truth of God to our lives. We just struggle with it. The simplest of tasks seem to befuddle us. I remember a, a family friend of ours in California, very bright people, very, very well educated, and uh, they were engaged with the challenge of a family vacation. I know maybe some of you are on a family vacation to Seattle this weekend, and you know that sometimes that's the most daunting of all challenges, you know, just simply to get from point A to uh, point B by car, by airplane. Sometimes just getting to church can be a challenge as a family. This is a large family. And uh, all different ages, and so they drive the SUV. They've they've done someone uh, has done some some uh, planning, right? Everybody's got a role. Everybody's got a function. You know, one to take the smallest child, the other to get the stroller out, to get the bags, to get through to the you know the line and all this. And so the the SUV comes up to the curb, SFO. The six doors pop open instantly, and they look like a SWAT team. You know, they're just kind of moving through the sidewalk and you know into the airport and through security and all this. They get on the plane, catch their breath, and go, well done. We have made it. We're on the plane. And uh, someone says, did anybody park the car? You know, and sure enough, the car was curbside, all six doors open and idling. You know, that's a long flight. In that instance, lacking a little bit in wisdom, whatever else uh, this family had. It failed to be able to apply what they knew, the smarts, you know, the idea to action, to embody it. That's what wisdom is. God is engaging us on a journey, uh, and the, writer in the, wis- the writers in the wisdom tradition invite us to the path, to walk the path, as this text says, whoever walks with the wise. We walk, and God engages us in that journey. From the very beginning of Scripture, we find the first thing that's gone wrong is that Adam and Eve, when God is walking through the garden in the still of the evening, they're hiding. They're not walking with God. Enoch, we read just a few chapters later, is one who walks with God. And he's translated into his presence mysteriously. Noah is a man who walked with God. Abraham walked with God. And we saw last week, God says, walk the promise from its extremity, to one extremity to the next. In Canaan, the Israelites are walking with God as he journeys with them toward the promise in the wilderness. They're asked to walk around the city of Jericho seven times, so to bring down uh, the city. God meets us in the midst of our walking. Jesus himself walks through Palestine. He's always walking, and he's calling us to walk as well. He heals us, and he says, now you, stand up and walk. Right? Come and follow me, Jesus says. And then he walks away. He's always on the move. Life is a walk. And that walk takes us 
to new places. That's the first reason why you'll never come back with a companion unchanged. The second reason is life is a walk with. Notice the preposition. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise. This two-letter Hebrew uh, particle, preposition, is the, it says something about the nature of human beings. The withness. This is personified in Ralph the Dog, you know, the Muppet character who's uh, behind his piano, you know, in the Muppet movie, and Kermit the Frog has got the blues, and so Ralph is playing. He says, you know, I've never seen a guy that green, so blue. And he, he's trying to give Kermit some advice, and he says, Kermit, this is what I do when I'm sad. You know, I come home from work, I, I read a book, have a couple of beers, take myself out for a walk and go to bed, you know. Some of us try to do that. We try to take ourselves out for a walk. We have this fiction that we can live autonomously. We're a world unto ourselves, But both our biology and our uh, theology would say otherwise. And that's really the core assumption behind this text. It's that there's something about human beings, something about our very nature that makes us susceptible to the influence of other people. That's what's behind this, this promise, this proverb. And, and, and we find that reality... Uh, in biology, in, in neurology, there's a thing that uh, researchers are looking at more recently called mirror neurons. Maybe you've read about them. They're a particular kind of cell in the brain that uh, govern experience. They respond to experiences. When something happens to you, your mirror neurons fire. You don't have to think about it. It just happens. It's their immediate response. So we've discovered this in uh, monkeys, apparently. So if you take a monkey and properly wire them up, you take an ice cream cone and put it in their hands, and they lick the ice cream cone, particular uh, cells will fire these mirror neurons in a particular pattern. And then they find if you take the ice cream cone away, but a researcher uh, walks into the room in a lab coat, and she's licking an ice cream cone. The mirror neurons of that monkey will fire in exactly the same pattern. So there's a kind of a, an empathy there that's hardwired. They respond. And we're also finding that there, there's something about proximity, that the closer this person with the ice cream cone is to the monkey, the more the response is, is, is faithful, as though he might be asked to involve himself in the ice cream cone. And so there's kind of a greater echo. So this withness, and we think that this may be true of human brains as well, this kind of withness. That when I am with you, the kinds of experiences that you are feeling, the kinds of reactions to the, those experiences become in some ways um, signaled in my brain as though I were experiencing them as well. You rub off on me. Theologically, we understand this as a, a, a byproduct of our nature made in the image of God. Let us make human beings like us, God said. Well, what is God like? Theologians sometimes refer to God in terms of the, the social trinity. This goes back to the Greek fathers, the Cappadocian fathers, comes through the Orthodox tradition principally. It's been kind of revived recently in theology, this idea that the oneness of God and the threeness of God could be captured, say, in the image of a square dance. When you think of dancers who move the do-si-do and they grab arms and they release and they interact with one another, they're really separate persons, but there's really one thing, the dance. The Greek word for that is perichoresis. 
And so in the same way, perhaps God is, as God relates to himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in this eternal dance of love. We, we, we understand how it is God could be one, but also three. When God says, let us make humans like ourselves, perhaps God is saying, let us make them relational. Let us make them people who will always dance, who will always seek the influence of others, who will always know the exchange and give and take of love. So when God says, God is love, and then asks us to love, God is asking us to do what we are designed to do, because we're like him. Life is a walk with. We emulate ideas that are embodied. When you're a wise person and I see how you respond to the challenges of your life, something inside of me takes that on board and becomes a part of who I am. So negatively speaking, we have this idea that those who are companions of fools or friends of fools will, become, will come to harm. Hebrew poetry is oftentimes marked by three types of what we call parallelism. That's where the first part of the verse is parallel to the second part of the verse. And there are three kinds. Uh, there's synonymous parallelism, where the, the two ideas are the same and expressed similarly. There's antithetical parallelism, where the second idea says the same thing, but it does it using the inverse. It says the opposite. And then there's synthetic parallelism, which ex- where the second uh, uh, stitch is, is an extension of the first. What we have here in this text is antithetical parallelism. Verse 20 says, whoever walks with the wise will become wise. That's the central notion of the verse. But now the writer presents us with the opposite in the inverse, but the companion of fools suffers harm. This helps us when we realize this because now we can see a little bit clearer what it means to walk with, what the withness is about. It's set in parallel relationship to the phrase companion of. So that those who walk with are those who are the companions of. It's a particle of association, spending time together, being with, experiencing life together, walking together. John Knox renders uh, uh, into English what Jerome put into Latin, the Vulgate translation. He says, fool he ends, that fool befriends. If you read in Hebrew, you would catch a similar kind of a euphony in these verses. They're very, there's a lot of playing on words here. We can't hear it in English. But fool he ends, that fool befriends. But more positively, the intention of this verse is to tell us you can be wise simply by choosing the right friends. Wow. We see this principle otherwhere, elsewhere in the Proverbs. Proverbs 27:17 says, iron sharpens iron. And one person sharpens the wits of another. In Hebrew, literally, his friend, same word. The King James Version, I like. Iron sharpeneth iron. So a man sharpeneth the countenance of his friend. You see that? The countenance of your friend. When you look into your friend's eyes, there's a sharpening that's going on. That kind of social empathy. It's going to affect who you are. It's going to make you a better person, a sharper person. It's going to allow you to embody the truth about who God is in your own life in a fresh way. So... Two reasons. One is that life is a walk and walks take us places. The other is that life is a walk with, with people and we're responsive to people. They change us. The third reason is that life is a walk with wisdom. Whoever walks with the wise, we are told, 
becomes wise. And I've told you what wisdom is, embodiment of truth in life. But what is folly, which is the, the opposing um, in the, in, uh, dyad in this pair? Folly is really not a thing in itself. I would go here with Augustine, who says that evil is not a thing. It's the absence of something. It's the absence of good. And I think in the same way that folly is not a thing. It's the absence of the good that we call wisdom. There are many ideas that can be embodied in action. That's folly when those ideas are not the idea that we belong to God, that we are his creatures, that he has made us that he loves us, that he has a future for us. Yes, that he can change your heart and mind, your life and mind. Those are the ideas about God that can be embodied in uh, wisdom. The ultimate and most important idea about ourselves is that we are his, whether we acknowledge it or not. Wisdom is is, is more powerful than folly. I want to read to you from Cornelius Plantinga's book, not the way it's supposed to be, in which he speaks of rebellion from God, yes, as sin, but as folly, as foolishness. Something that doesn't make sense when you really think about it. Cornelius writes, to rebel against God is to saw off the branch that supports us. As Richard Lovelace remarks, to flee from God to some far country and to search for fulfillment there is to find only black market substitutes. Instead of joy, the buzz in your temples from four or five martinis. Instead of self-giving love, sex with strangers. Instead of a parent's unconditional enthusiasm for you as a person, only the professional support of a fashionable therapist, who will indeed pump up your ego whenever it loses pressure, but only why his meter is running. Rebellion against God and flight from God removes us from the sphere of blessing, cutting us off from our only invisible means of support. Folly is is merely a shadow. Wisdom is the brilliant light of God shining through our lives. I don't know about you. Does this text make you uncomfortable in any way? You say, whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools suffer harm. Does it seem like a kind of awkward implication of this text that we should somehow withdraw from people who do not seem as wise as those with whom we want to or should associate ourselves with? Does it make you uncomfortable as a follower of Jesus when you think about Jesus Christ was the one who walks with everybody? And in fact, if we had to be specific, he walks with fools because he walks with me and he walks with you. And so how is it that this is true? Jesus, moreover, doesn't ask us to withdraw from people of of whom we don't uh, approve. He sends us out into relationship with those. He seems to stand the truth of this proverb exactly on its head. Well, I want to say two things about that. First, we always want to balance texts of Scripture with one another and, and recognize that this is not a book of mission. This is a book of development and growth. Proverbs and the whole genre of wisdom literature is sage advice that a mentor or oftentimes a parent would give to uh, his or her child. Here's how you will grow in life. Here's how you can become a successful person in life. That's really what's within the purview of the wisdom literature. There are other texts in the scripture, there are other books that are more concerned with mission and our outreach. 
And so you might think to yourself, what if you're a parent, you think when you ask your child to find good friends, right? Those of us who are parents, we send our kids off to high school and we pray and we request, I, I hope that you'll find some good friends. Well, what does that mean, good friends? I think it means two different things. I think it means friends who will encourage you in the ways of God, in the good news of Jesus Christ. People who will affirm the best in you. But also, people who need you. People who can understand the love of Jesus Christ in a special way because you come alongside of them and befriend them. Those are two circles. There's a, a circle of growth and a circle of care, and they oftentimes significantly overlap. But there is a distinction to be made. Jesus himself will know that his circle of growth is in the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's where he is formed. His circle of care is, are the circles with which he sits in his earthly ministry uh, with us, showing God's love, pouring it into our lives. So we can make a distinction here. The second thing I would say about this, this question, what about Jesus, is simply that Jesus is, as so often is the case, the exception that proves the rule. The scriptures will speak of Jesus as the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God. He is the wisdom of God. Which is to say that Jesus is the one who makes this promise possible. Jesus is the one who gives authority to this proverb. If there were not wisdom that would someday come, ultimate wisdom, that would be the font of all other human wisdoms, then what assurance could the writer of this proverb have that wisdom would grow over time? How would the writer not know that folly would swallow up wisdom in the end? He's confident because prophetically, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, there is some sense that God is faithful and will be faithful. And in the end, that faithfulness looks like the face of Jesus Christ who comes to walk with fools. Jesus is the wisdom of God because he's the truth of God. He shows us everything we can know about who God is. C.S. Lewis sits with his dog one afternoon, smoking his pipe, I'm sure, and, and uh, he's reading. And he's asking himself questions like you and I ask about the meaning of our lives and our challenges and adversities. And I wonder why it happens this way. And as you know, if you've read any C.S. Lewis, he's always making up theories. He's saying, I bet this is what it is. He's got all these speculations, and then he looks into his dog's face. And he says, and this is in Reflections on the Psalms, he says, but of course, these conjectures as to why God does what he does are probably of no more value than my dog's ideas of what I am up to when I sit down to read. Right? Your dog is just wondering, man, she just hasn't moved for a long time. Is she still alive? The ball is here. Lewis says, how, how can we know the mind of God, perfect truth, unless God would come and become like us, take on flesh and speak his truth? In speaking his truth and revealing to us the truth about God, he does so in, in embodied form, as wisdom would do. It's truth embodied, truth in life, truth that makes decisions, truth that acts, truth that walks. And so we find Jesus Christ is the most helpful of all wise ones. The writer of Hebrews notices this in chapter 2 and chapter 4. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. We have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. See, the wisdom of God has faced 
every temptation that we would face in some general sense so we can look to him. We can emulate him. We can allow that social influence to transform us as we walk with Jesus. Well, these three reasons, life is a walk, a walk with, and a walk with wisdom, are the reasons I think we will never come back from a walk with a companion changed. But what about you? How would you apply this text to your life today? Well, I, I think it's fairly straightforward. You and I are called to walk with someone who will walk with us while she or he walks with Jesus Christ. To look for those people in your life. Because Jesus, his body physically, is on the right hand of God the Father. We said it in the Creed. But by analogy, he said, I leave behind another body, the church, the community, the communion of those who are wise fools because they walk with me. So the Apostle Paul, after arguing very eloquently that Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God, that all the wisdom of the ages and of human beings seemed to miss in the crucifixion, says, now, because Christ has ascended, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. I'm walking with Jesus. I'm not perfect, but I'm walking with him, and surely there's something to be learned. Well, John Bunyan gives us this story of a journey, a walk from one place to the place of promise. He tells us of a moment when Christian, his main character, is walking through the valley of the shadow of death. And it's a place of great confusion in that Christian begins to hear voices, dark voices. The reader is told that there is a, a dark figure behind Christian, but Christian can't distinguish from the voices of this figure, which is unknown to him, and his own thoughts. But in the midst of that confusion and disorientation, Christian hears the voice of a man named Faithful. When Christian had traveled in this disconsolate condition some considerable time, he thought he heard the voice of a man as going before him, saying, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear none ill, for thou art with me. Then Christian was glad, and that for these reasons. First, because he gathered from thence that some who feared God were in this valley as well as himself. He's not alone. Second, for that he perceived God was with them, though in that dark and dismal state. And why not, thought he, with me? Though by reason of the impediment that attends this place, I cannot perceive it. And thirdly, for that he hoped, could he overtake them to have company by and by. So he went on and called to him that was before, that one who journeys ahead on the path and makes him his companion. Two questions for you. In what area of your life would you like to apply God's truth? Where do you need skill? Think of that. Is there a part of your life that you just think, I could be doing this better, I know it, but I, I need some more skill, I need wisdom. What would that area be? Think about that. And the second question is, who do you know that's in your life, or who could be in your life, who's demonstrated wisdom in that area? Maybe you admire their marriage. Maybe you admire their, the way they work. Maybe you admire their relationship with God. Would you want to make them your companion? Write down their name. 
If something comes to mind, write it down or fix it in your memory, and I want to encourage you to address them. Even today, I want to encourage you to actually tell them, you're the person. You're a wise person in my life, and I thank you for that. Would you, would you be willing to encourage them? I see some spouses squeezing uh, some hands, because sometimes you're married to that person, and you'll become like them as you walk with them, and that's good news. In 1935, a man by the name of Bill Wilson was in a hotel called the Mayflower Hotel in Akron, Ohio. He was an alcoholic, and he had been dry for five months. Yet he was away on a business trip. It was the day before Mother's Day. He was feeling very much alone, and he could hear the clink of glasses and the laughter and the chatter in the bar by the lobby. And something within him immediately seized him, and he said to himself, I need a drink. It was a compelling urge, but he stopped himself with another thought. Oh, I don't need a drink. I need an alcoholic. And Bill Wilson went to a phone booth, and he began making phone calls, and he discovered that there was a doctor in town who was an alcoholic, and the two men met, and they became the founders of Alcoholics Anonymous. You're not looking for a perfect person. You're looking for a person who has been tested and challenged and struggled in the area where you struggle so that you can see in their face, their countenance, the way that they respond to those challenges, that something in you could take that on board. C.S. Lewis writes, We are carriers of Christ in mere Christianity, and I close with this. Men and women are mirrors or carriers of Christ to other people. Sometimes unconscious carriers, this good infection, can be carried by those who have not got it themselves. People who are not Christians themselves help me to Christianity. But usually it is those who know him that, uh, that bring him to others. That is why the church, the whole body of Christians, showing him to one another is so important. You might say that when two Christians are following Christ together, there is not twice as much Christianity as when they are apart, but 16 times as much. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, how from eternity past you have enjoyed the fellowship, the companionship of one another, but that you have invited us into that circle of love by taking on human form, becoming the Son of God incarnate as Jesus the Messiah and walking among us, displaying for us so great a wisdom, that which no eye has seen, no ear had heard, now we see in the face of Jesus Christ. And we are invited, though we be fools, to be companions of Jesus Christ, and to walk with him and to be changed by his wisdom. We thank you. And our prayer this morning is that you would bring to mind those people whom you've already set within arm's reach of us. That when we reach out to them and acknowledge we want to be companions to them, we want to walk with them, they will say yes and walk with us. Bring those names to mind and grant them to have the grace to befriend us. And if we be those friends, we pray that you give us the wisdom that these folks need as we journey together and learn from one another. In his name we pray. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.